Scripture reading this morning is Colossians 3, 1 to 5. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. Today we ask a question that we've been asking since the beginning of the semester, and that is, what does it mean to live right side up? especially in what seems to be an upside-down world. Today we consider the words of the Apostle Paul, as you just heard read, from Colossians. But in order to do that, instead of just hearing those words, we need to hear those words in context. So, I'm going to read the whole epistle of Colossians. Now, some of you thought I was going to do it. I'm I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read things that precede the verses that were just read and things that follow those verses in order to illuminate those verses which are right in the middle. What do I mean by that? Well, let me read. In the chapter just preceding this, chapter 2, verse 16, we hear these words. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their own unspiritual minds. They have lost connection from the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What do those words summarized mean? Well, may I just use one word? Asceticism. 
which is a harsh treatment of the body, heavy regulations on life for the purpose of achieving a mystical spirituality. Paul says that's not the way to live right side up. That's not the approach I want you to take, or to put it another way, don't live this way. What's the context for this, and what is Paul actually saying? He begins in in this same section earlier in chapter 2 by saying, I don't want you to be judged by other things except by Christ. Because your life is hidden in Christ, he says later. So what I'm suggesting, Paul says, is that you live a new kind of life. What kind of life were the critics that Paul seems to be criticizing, suggesting? It's always difficult to know completely who they were or exactly what they were saying. But we can piece together a few things from Paul's message to the Colossians, which, by the way, is a church he never visited. Isn't that interesting? A church that was established by one of his disciples. But he heard about the problems in Colossia, and he addressed them in this letter. What is the problem? Apparently, there's a problem from some teachers, teachers who are spreading a kind of mystical spirituality, something that was in addition to Christ, something that you needed extra in order to really be profoundly Christian. Not unlike what you see in 1 Corinthians, it seems. Let's add to it, say the critics, and here's what we need to add to it. Apparently, it was sort of a syncretism, a blending of some forms of Judaism and the law and some other elements of spirituality that were brought to bear by these people. Let's put these things together, new moons and Sabbath and fasts and all kinds of ascetic approaches to the body. Let's do that in order to become more spiritual. And let's do it, they seem to be suggesting, in order to manage sin. You manage sin, they may have said, by a harsh treatment of the body. A a form of self-flagellation. Use that approach, they may have been saying, in order to achieve spirituality. There are several problems with that approach, according to Paul, the approach that precedes chapter 3. And here are some of the problems. These rules, actually, whatever they were, some of them listed, some of them not, these rules and regulations actually create a false sense of humility which is the same thing as pride. When you write up these rules and you stick to them so that you can become even more and more righteous by your own effort, you create a false humility or a pride. There's another reason Paul says this is improper. Because the focus becomes about these regulations 
And before long, the person who's focused on these regulations is disconnected from the head, which is Jesus Christ. Instead of being connected to the head from which all things flow, this person or persons is connected to the rules or the regulations that are ascetic for the body. There's a third thing, at least a third thing, that Paul suggests is improper about this approach. This approach imposes what he calls self-imposed worship. That is a very interesting phrase. And translators have struggled to know exactly how to express that phrase. As a matter of fact, I like the most the translation that was given in the old 1611 King James Version. These practices, says the old King James Version, have an appearance of godliness or holiness or righteousness, but actually, in fact, they are a form of will worship. Will worship. Self-imposed worship. Structures of worship that you so step into that you're actually worshiping self your own self-constructed rules. Paul says, that's why I advise you or strongly command you not to follow this approach to spirituality. There's one final thing. He says it at the very end of chapter two. He says, in effect, let's just be practical. It doesn't work. Let's just be realistic, says Paul. This does not manage sin. Or to put it another way, I remember a game that I used to play as a child and my children used to play with me. And they loved this game because it didn't require any thinking at all. It was just fun. And it was action. And it was called whack-a-mole. Remember that game? They had all these little moles with circular holes that would pop up on this board. And as soon as you knocked one down, another one would pop up. And you would beat to death these moles that never stayed down. Paul, in effect, is saying sin management with will worship is just like that. You're going around whacking your sins. And as soon as you whack it, it comes right back up. That's not the approach to following Christ that I want you to adopt, he says. So, you can't live right side up, says Paul, when you live this way. But here's another way, Paul says, that you should not follow. And it comes in verse 5 of chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lusts, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all these things, such as anger and rage 
and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self, taken it off with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. How to put this? Don't live this way, Paul says, antinomianism. I've already used one big word. This one's not so big, but it sounds complicated and it's very simple. Antinomianism is a word that we take from Greek. And it could be divided up into two parts. Anti, very simple, anti. Nomos means law. So what does it mean? It means against law. Paul says, I don't want you to live in such a way, as he says on a couple of other occasions, specifically in Romans chapter 6 and in Galatians 3, I don't want you to live in such a way, now that you understand grace, that you are an antinomian, that you are a person who disregards the law of God because the law of God says you were created not to live like this, after the lust of the flesh. That is God's law. Don't live that way. So I don't want you to sin, as he says in Romans 6, so that grace may increase, God forbid. I also, as he says in Galatians, I don't want you to use your freedom to indulge in sin. That's not the point. You've been redeemed. There is no condemnation. You've been given freedom in Christ so that you might live after the Spirit and not after the flesh. So living against the law of God Not a good way to live, Paul says. Put away those things which were a part of your past life. By the way, that that list of sins is a list that those who would have been Jewish in his audience would have immediately understood. They were a list of sins that would have been abhorrent to any Orthodox Jew. And they were a list of sins that were really quite common among the so-called Gentiles, which many of them had been. And that's why Paul says, don't live like you used to live after the lust of the flesh. That's no way to live either. That's upside down living. By the way, um, can you imagine too many things more countercultural than that advice? Don't live like that. Living like that is living upside down. Don't gratify your sinful nature. Don't be selfish. Don't be overcome with lust. Don't try to grab every single thing you can for yourself. That's another kind of world, Paul says. Don't do it. Don't live that way. So, 
What is living right side up? Now we go right back to the middle of the passages that we've been reading. And here it is. Since you've been raised with Christ, this is living right side up. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of God. And set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Oh, but let me finish how to live right side up. It comes at the end of this chapter. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven as the Lord forgave him. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful, and let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs and from the Spirit uh, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through Him. What's living right side up? It's living in this present world with every bit of this material reality, every bit of it, and living with it, having an eternal perspective. Did you notice that Paul doesn't denigrate anything related to our material world? He doesn't name something in a material world and say that is evil. Paul doesn't do that. Because Paul understands that when God created everything in the beginning, he pronounced all of it good. Including desires. There are other traditions, philosophical perspectives, and even religious traditions that actually suggest that desire, desire is the enemy. And if you can neutralize desire and live without passion in pure neutrality, then you've attained Righteousness or perfection or 
nirvana. Nothing could be more dissimilar than that to Paul's theology. Paul wants us to take every element of life. The Bible itself wants us to take every element of life and seize it and sanctify it so that my passions are not subverted, but they're sanctified. So that my desires are not called evil, but my desires are put under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So that I look at all my life, all around me, and I say, that is an object for service to the glory of God. Every single thing. So, very simply, to make this as practical as possible, my suggestion, it's really, I think, a good time to do it going into Thanksgiving, but it's always a good time to do it, is to try to seize Paul's advice to have an eternal perspective, to keep our minds and our hearts focused on things above. Not that things beneath make no difference, but that our focus on things above reinterprets our reality right here and changes how we view all of life. How do you do that? That could be a a huge discussion, couldn't it? If this was our classroom, I would ask you the question. Having heard Paul's advice, how do you do this? Actually, let's pretend like it is a classroom. I won't ask you to say it out loud. But come up with an answer. Maybe write it down. And then, I want to give us an exercise for this week that may help us come up with one answer after another. Here's the answer, or the exercise. I I began the description of the exercise by telling you something about my childhood. I believe I've mentioned before. When I was a child, we used to have a magazine that arrived, I think it was monthly, at our home. I don't know if the magazine even exists anymore. It was called Highlights Magazine. Heard of it? Well, there's a lot of wonderful things about that children's magazine, but... I have to admit, the thing I liked the most, and as soon as we got the magazine I opened up to find, was the picture. And all kinds of images. Some artists would draw it. And then it was your job to find the person or the thing all over buried within the image. It might say something like, this monkey appears 15 times. Can you find him? I don't know if it was a predecessor to where's Waldo or not, you know? But it was the same idea. So here's the exercise. As you walk through your day, walk through your day that way. What are you looking for? You're asking this question. Lord, Where are you present in this activity? 
any activity. Including washing the dishes. Which, by the way, is my job at home. See, my natural impulse is to say, I can find the presence of my Lord and his beauty more in my wife's cooking than I can in the dirty dishes that I wash. But it's not true. Because as I wash the dirty dishes, I prepare it for the next feast. And as I wash the dirty dishes, I serve my wife who served me. And as I wash the dirty dishes, I look ahead on occasion to big grand celebrations like Thanksgiving or Christmas or just friends. So, Lord, where are you in this activity? That's the first question. The second question, Lord, where are you present in these circumstances? The first is active, activity. You're doing something. The second is passive, something for the most part is being done to you. There's circumstances all around you that you have to deal with. There's life pushing in on you. If you're a parent, you can't hardly keep your eyes open because the children always need you. I remember those days. You were exhausted by caring. Lord, where are you present in these circumstances? Or pick any other circumstance. Like at work, when everything is a tornado. I happen to know some of you who are in the midst of a work tornado right now? I think it's really a good question to ask. Lord, where are you present in these circumstances? The final question is, Lord, where are you in my relationships? Some of it may be pretty obvious, but sometimes it may be altogether hidden. There's two different occasions I thought of in the New Testament that kind of address this, where are you in the other person? The first came from Matthew, chapter 25 and verse 40. You, re- you remember these words. When you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. There's some sense in which Christ is present in the other. When you don't see it, when you least expect it, when it looks the most unlike God. The other passage that came to mind, this one also in the New Testament, it was an admonition um, to Christ followers in the book of Hebrews. It said, in effect, my paraphrase, Be careful when you're with people 
Why? Because there are those who have extended hospitality and kindness to a stranger unaware that they were angels in disguise. I'm not an uber-mystical kind of guy. But it may be true. Last week, or this week, or next week, Christ will actually be present. And you will miss him. I don't want to miss him. Do you? So I want to be alert. I want to ask these three questions. About where is he present in my work? Where he's present in my circumstances? And where he's present in the other? Let's pray. Lord, um, your word is instructive. There's no doubt about that. It's so practical. But it's also mysterious. We can't piece together exactly how you work. We can't always see your activity, but we can ask for help. And so I I ask, Lord, this week as we go about our work and our play and our fellowship, that you will open the eyes of our heart so that we can see you. That as we look into our work or our circumstances or our relationships, we will find the presence of Jesus Christ. If we're able to see you, Lord, in unexpected ways, it will be, well, the work of eternity. Because eternity is not just out there. It defines right here. So help us to step into it with all our hearts. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.